We are in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're new here or if you're visiting, we've been going through the book of Luke for several months before the summer. And in the summer, we're taking a little bit of a different rhythm, looking at one chapter and doing this verse by verse, which is very different for the Crossroads community. But it's been, uh, it's been a joy. Hebrews 11, it's uh, what Dan Mike likes to call the Hall of Faith. Is that what you call it, Dan, I think? <laughs> One thing I love about what we're doing with this uh, book of Hebrews, or this chapter in Hebrews, is it's allowing us to look at the Bible as a story. And I, don't know, I know we do that here at Crossroads, and I love that. I love that approach to Scripture. You know, I've been a student of God's Word now for... I don't know, 15, 18 years when I was in college, I just started reading my Bible. And uh, I don't know where I started, I just opened it up and I started reading and I've been reading it ever since. And, and um, it was a number of years ago where, and it was a lot of even Rod leading, leading me through this, the way I approach scripture has shifted to rather than seeing this as um, a set of principles and philosophies or even rules and uh, my, my manual for the day rather than opening it up in the morning and saying, God, what are my marching orders today, which really is all about me. Uh, over the years, I've started to see this thing as a story. A story all about a man named Jesus. And that's all over this, it's all over this book. From beginning to end, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the whole thing is a story about a man named Jesus, and anywhere you open in this book, you're somewhere in that story. And one of the great things we get to do with Hebrews 11 is it goes through the the, the fathers and mothers of faith and allows us to see the story of God and how it all points us back to Jesus. And so this morning, we are in... Hebrews 11, verse 22. One verse this morning. Hebrews 11, verse 22. We like to stand for the reading of God's Word, so stand with me. Hebrews 11, verse 22. If you have a blue Bible, somebody shout out the page number. 975 in your blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand real high so we can all see who didn't bring their Bibles to church. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, guys. Seriously. I don't bring my Bible to church in the mornings. Seriously. I got three kids. Ain't nobody got time to bring their Bible to church when you're hauling three kids around. But if you do need a Bible, there's some Bibles around, and you're not going to have time to get one anyway, so just listen. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph. Go ahead and have a seat. No, I'm serious. Have a seat. That's all we're reading right now. We'll read the rest of it. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to make stuff up this morning. It's just all, that's where we're going to start. By faith, Joseph. Let's do a little bit of review here. How does the writer of Hebrews define faith? Does anybody remember? What is faith according to Hebrews? Who's got it? Here's what I, um, the last week I've been spending time with high schoolers where we've been reading the word of God together, where... Uh, so we're going to do that a little bit here this morning as we review. So um, you're allowed to talk right now, and I want some interaction. So you just say it loud and proud with chutzpah. How does the writer of Hebrews define faith? Faith. 
being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a forward-looking faith. It's a faith in what is yet to come. What do we know about this man, Joseph? Let's do a little bit of review. And again, I want a little bit of feedback here. Let's work through this together. Let's remember who is, jo- who is Joseph? What do you know about Joseph? Son of Jacob. Son of Jacob. Great. Which son? Favorite. favorite son. Why is he the favorite son? Son of the favorite wife, favorite wife which is? Who is it? Rachel. Hey, that was good. It was a good start. Rachel. Jo- this guy, Jacob, uh, had... Uh, had two wives, Leah and Rachel. It says that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And Leah had six sons. And then Jacob, uh, and then Rachel has a son, the seventh son. And this son's name is Joseph. Which, uh, in Jacob's mind, puts him as the firstborn son, the firstborn of the woman that he loved. And so he gets treated as the firstborn, right? What else do we know about Joseph? He's a dreamer. What did he dream? That his family would bow down to him. You guys remember the story of these stalks of wheat and the stars bowing down. What else do you know about Joseph? Go ahead. Loud. He was sold. Sold where? To who? By whom? By his brothers. To whom? The Ishmaelites or the Edomites seem to be the same people in the Bible. Okay? And then what happens? Goes to Egypt. What happens in Egypt? Randy, you can't give away all the answers. <laughs> okay? What happens in Egypt? Potiphar goes into Potiphar's house. What happens in Potiphar's house? He prospers. Then what happens? He gets accused. Accused of what? Attempted rape. So Potiphar's wife solicits him. He is a man of integrity. And rather than even entertaining that thought, he runs out the door. And there's a very interesting phrase in that story. When uh, Potiphar's wife solicits Joseph, and Joseph responds and says, Uh, Your husband has entrusted me with everything in his care. And then his response is to this, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? We see a man who is committed to God. Not committed to Potiphar, committed to God. What else? What happens after that? He, He gets accused and then what? Goes to jail. What happens in jail? Yes. He what? Interprets dreams. Whose dreams? Baker and the cupbearer, right? Then what happens? Stays in prison. Why? You forgot. Who forgot? The cupbearer. I love this. You guys know the story. So the cupbearer, he interprets these couple of dreams. He tells the baker, uh, your head is about to get lifted off your body. And the cupbearer, you're going to be restored. And the cupbearer says, oh, Joseph, I will never forget you. The next day he forgets him. And Joseph spends another two years in prison. What happens in prison? He prospers again. Then what happens? Pharaoh has a dream. Two dreams, as a matter of fact. And then what happens? The cupbearer remembers, right? And what are the dreams? Well, well, then what happens? 
What does he remember? Joseph. That Joseph interprets dreams. So then what happens? What is it? Pharaoh. Go get him. Joseph comes back, interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. And what are the, what's the interpretation of the dreams? It's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. So what does Pharaoh do? Joseph, you're in charge. Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the world at this point. Second only to Pharaoh, arguably the most important powerful man in the world at this point. Okay, then what happens? This is fun, I like this. What happens? His brothers come. How come? The famine, right? The famine is so severe that his brothers come and what happens? What is it? They don't know who he is. He recognizes them. You guys know the rest of the story, right? They bow down to him just as was told to him in his dreams. Uh, And then he reveals himself. He goes through this whole testing, which is a really interesting process where he kind of tests his brothers, uh, brings the whole family back to Egypt. And now Israel is in Egypt. So we know the story. Incredible story. A couple of things that as I've been studying this life of Joseph over the past several weeks that I've found very, very intriguing. The first is the sheer amount of space given to Joseph in Scripture. When I think about Genesis, and I think about the main parts and the main stories of Genesis, I think about creation, Adam and Eve, the flood, Noah, Tower of Babel, Um, think about Abraham, and I'd probably say Joseph is in there somewhere. In my mind, Joseph doesn't take a big, prominent role, especially in the book of Genesis. I don't know about you, but I find it very interesting that the story of Joseph takes up a full quarter of the book of Genesis. Thirteen chapters are given to the story of Joseph. The same number of chapters given to Abraham are given to Joseph. Significant, significant character. Uh, Here's the other thing that I found very, very interesting is that when I read the story of Joseph, I don't find any flaw in Joseph. We've heard over the past several weeks as we've gone through these fathers of faith that a lot of these guys are screw-ups, right? We've looked at how God has used these guys with some pretty glaring mistakes in their lives, um, some pretty big sin issues, Except for Joseph. When you read the story of Joseph, you read a man of complete integrity. A man who loves the Lord and walks in complete integrity. He's almost, and and be careful with this, but he's almost portrayed in a messianic fashion. He's not, now understand what I'm saying, he's not sinless. He's not the Messiah. As a matter of fact, at the end of the story, Joseph dies. So he's not the Messiah, but the way he's presented is flawless. One of the few characters in the Bible that is presented in a flawless nature. I find this very interesting. So then when I think about what is the defining moment of faith in Jesus' life, it's like, man, where do you even begin, right? There's so many stories about Joseph that took faith that where do you even begin to describe the faith of Joseph's life? 
I don't know what you would have chose. Would you choose the dreams? Would you choose the interpretations? Would you choose uh, saving all of the people from the famine? I mean, anything you could choose. What does the writer of Hebrews choose? By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. And all God's people said, What? Why in the world, when we've got 13 chapters of this incredible man of God, is this the defining moment of faith in his life? As a matter of fact, I had to look up whether this is even in the Bible. Whether we even have a record of Joseph talking about the Exodus and giving instructions. I didn't even know if that was in the Bible. I had no idea. And sure enough, he turned to Genesis 50. And after 13 chapters of Joseph's faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to Joseph, we get two verses. We get two verses. Joseph 50, verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Two verses is what Joseph is commended for as the moment of faith in his life. This begs a couple of questions in my mind. Why in the world, out of all the things that Joseph did and was a part of, Why is this the defining moment of faith in Joseph's life? I want to spend the rest of our time uh, exploring these two comments that Joseph talked about the Exodus and gave instructions about his bones. And let's see if we can make some sense out of why this is the defining moment of faith in Joseph's life. And let's see if we can make some sense out of Joseph's life in light of this reality. And I think as we begin to unpack it, at least for me, it, 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 as we let Scripture illuminate, uh, I think it starts to make sense in my, minds, in my mind. Joseph spoke about the Exodus. This also begs a question in my mind. How did Joseph even know about the Exodus? This is 400 years in the, or. 300 years, depending on how you put the timeline together. Regardless, this is centuries in the future. How does Joseph know about the Exodus? Now, we've got a couple of options when we ask that question. We could speculate about it. And I think speculation would probably lend, it, lend an interpretation that, well, Joseph probably had a prophetic word from the Lord about the future. Maybe. However... The text doesn't tell us that. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the story of Joseph do we have record of God speaking directly to Joseph. I find this very, very compelling. Now, you might say, well, the dreams were God speaking to him, and I I could go there with you. Or you might say the interpretations that he gave, that was certainly spiritual discernment. I mean, Joseph himself says, don't dreams belong to the Lord. And then he, so there, so there's, there's at least evidence that God is, is present. However, we certainly do not have 
the level of clarity that we see with Abraham and God, or Jacob, or Isaac, Jacob, Moses, where God is speaking directly and giving this direct instruction. We don't have any of that in Joseph's life. So how did Joseph know about the Exodus? Well, when I go back to Genesis 50, again, I don't think we have to speculate about these kind of things. I think when we spend enough time in the Word, that it gives us some clues and some hints about what's going on. And when I go back to Genesis 50, Joseph tells his brothers, God will come to your aid and take you into the land that he promised our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How did Joseph know about the Exodus? I think he knew about the Exodus because he knew the promises that God had made to his forefathers. Because he knew the story. And he'd heard the promises. I think, I think that Joseph, he knew the promises that God had given to his forefathers. He knew the story. And he had seen the faithfulness of God in his own life. So he knew the promises of God and he trusted in the character of God. Which I think begs the question in our lives, do we trust the character of God? Because friends, we have the same promises. We have the same promises of God right here. That we've got the promises of God that he will protect. That he will provide. That he will guard. That he will lead. We have these promises here in scripture. And if we're honest and we look at our lives, we've got testimony in our own lives that God is faithful. Man, when I look back on my life, uh, all I can say is God has been faithful. There have been some rough patches. There have been things where th- there have been times when things were uncertain. There have been really painful times. There have been really exciting times. But when I look back on 35 years of life, all I can say is God has been faithful. That none of the promises of his word have fallen short in my life, but they have all come to pass. And I wonder, can we say that this morning? Can we say that about God in our lives this morning? Or our lives dictated by the circumstances of our lives? So I think this is the temptation, is that when things get difficult, when, we've, when we think that God is going to promote us and we find ourselves in a pit, when we finally get into promotion and all of a sudden we find ourselves in jail, do we let those circumstances dictate what we understand and believe about God? Or do we, or, or, or do we let the character of God be the lens in which we interpret life? Do we interpret our current circumstances based on the promises of God and the character of God? See, friends, God is not beholden to me to explain his plan in my life. He's not. God, no, God owes me nothing. He is faithful and he is God. And he owes me no explanation for what's happening in my life. And I, I, I want to be, be, be gentle with this because I, I don't know what I'm touching right now in your life. I, don't, I, I know in a, a room this size and I've, uh, I know some of you and I know there's incredible pain and there's circumstances that are unspeakable and things that are weighing you down. And I don't know those areas that I'm touching right now. 
I just want to say, friends, we can trust God. We can trust the character of God. What I love about Joseph also is that he understood by his own admission that God had a greater plan in his life. That God's plan in his life was greater than just him. Remember when at the end of Joseph's life, after Jacob dies, and Joseph's brothers come to him, they get scared because they think, oh no, our father's dead. Joseph is going to take revenge for this horrible thing. So they go to him sheepishly and say, okay, make a covenant with us because we don't want to get in trouble now. And Joseph's response is this. He says, no, you guys don't understand. What you intended for harm, I know God intended it for good. See, God, see Joseph understood that God's plan in his life was not only for his good, it was for the good of future generations. That the difficult circumstances in his life was for the good of generations to come and for even more people around him right now. Do we believe that about our life? Do we believe that we are part of this plan that is so much greater than ourselves? Or are we so focused that when things don't go our way, we start grumbling and complaining and questioning God? I find it very compelling that never do we see Joseph complaining or even asking God for an explanation in his life. But we see a man of complete integrity and faithfulness. And again, I think it's very interesting that nowhere in this record do we have evidence that God spoke directly to Joseph. Now, before I go on with this, let me just make this really clear. I believe that God speaks. And and I mean he speaks directly to us. I think he's got a specific word for each of you in this room. I believe that. Uh, I've got specific words from God in my life. My life is guided by certain specific words that God has given me. And, and my wife and our kids, are, we've named all of our kids based on uh, what we feel like the Lord spoke about their identity and their purpose while they're still in my wife's womb. We believe this. I teach this in our mission school. Uh, I teach a whole week on hearing and discerning the voice of God. So I believe this. But here's where I think we get off as I, I hear a lot of people, and I, it's often young people, who they're at this crossroads in life or in this difficult place in life and I hear this whining and complaining, I'm just not hearing God right now. Man, I gotta make these decisions about my job or things aren't going the way that I want them to go or yada, yada. And and then people start whining and complaining because I'm just not hearing God right now. And I say, why not? Why aren't you? Because friends, we can hear God every single day. It's right here. It's right here. Every single day you can hear from God. The very words of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide to the, the, to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions. Right here is the word of God. I can hear from God every single day. Anytime you want, you can hear from God. It's right here. If God never spoke another word directly to me, and he will, because that's who he is. That's just what he does. He just, that's, I'm confident that he will. But if he never did, this is enough right here. This is enough. And when I believe the character of God, and I believe the faithfulness of God, then I don't get so worried about my circumstances, because I know that God is guiding. 
I know that right now God has a purpose. That the things that are happening in my life, there's a purpose for that. I find it also compelling uh, in Hebrews 11, it says that when Joseph's end was near, he said these things. Why is this the defining moment of faith in Joseph's life? I think it speaks volumes about what faith is. Because I think we often relegate faith to these momentary miracle events. These mountaintop experiences. And we see those in Joseph's life. And yet the defining moment of faith in Joseph's life is when he got to the end of it all and he still hadn't seen the fulfillment of the promises of of God to his forefathers. He was still able to say, my God is faithful. At the end of his life, when things didn't go the way maybe he wanted them to, he was able to say, my God will do this. See, friends, this Christian walk is not about momentary experiences. It's not about mountaintop experiences. It's not about the big miracles in my life. It's about a life of daily faithfulness and obedience to God. I think that's what we see in Joseph. And I see, I interact with a lot of young people, and I see these young people that are just going from event to event, experience to experience. I got to go do this mission trip and have this high and go to this conference and this and this and this. And man, some of those things are great and some of them are worthless. But at the end of the day, what God is looking for is a life of daily obedience. Just daily obedience in the mundane. Joseph speaks this in Genesis 50 when he's 110 years old. 110 years old. Man, if I live to 110 years old, I want to be, man, what is that, 75 years in my life. I want to I be 75 years down the road and still say, my God is faithful. My God is faithful. Do you believe that about God this morning? Because you have the same promises this morning. You have the same promises and you serve the same God. When his end was near, Joseph spoke about the exodus. And he gave instructions about his bones. Why in the world did he give instructions about his bones? What's going on here? And I spent a lot of time with this, trying to figure this out. Was this a cultural thing? And all the commentaries that I looked at, nobody touched this. Nobody, there's no hint of actually what's going on. Is this like an, a sign of respect? Like, you know, we, uh, when we die, we want to have our family graveyard plot because there's some value and honor and and even in, 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 in Joseph's day, there's, there's value and there's honor in being buried in the land of your forefathers. Is, that's what, is that what's going on? Is he wants to be honored in being buried with his forefathers? Maybe, uh, but that doesn't take any faith, does it? That doesn't actually take any faith just to want to be respected and honored. But Hebrews tells us that by faith, Joseph said this. So why did this take faith? And if you remember, the writer of Hebrews defines faith as the hope in the things that are yet to come. So why is this a moment of faith for Joseph? Well, I think we have to connect a couple of things to start to make sense out of this. Again, we've got to ask, what were the instructions about his bones? It wasn't just about location or geography, but he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 
the Lord will surely come to your aid. And when he does, you need to take my bones into the land, into the land that he promised our forefathers. Why? Why is it important to Joseph that his bones go into the promised land? Again, I think we've got to connect something else here to start to make sense out of this. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 13, after it talks about Enoch and Noah and Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Verse 14, people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they, had been looking for, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have the opportunity to return. So there's a hint. Joseph's talking about more than just the country in which they've left. Verse 16, this is where it ties together for me. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were longing. Joseph, why did he give instructions about his bones? Because he was longing for a better country, for a heavenly country. Now, we don't know what Joseph believed about the afterlife. There's a lot of debate and, un- and uncertainty about what the ancients believed about eternity and the afterlife. And even we see in Jesus' day, the debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's, even in that day, there's a lot of dispute about what resurrection and no resurrection and what's this all about. But here's what we have here, is it seems evident to me that Joseph knew that there was another day coming. I would submit to you that Joseph gave instructions about his bones because he believed those bones were going to live again. Because he believed that those bones were going to be raised from the dead and live in the land that God promised. And while Joseph did not likely have the the revelation of heaven Friends, we've got a much clearer picture of what heaven looks like. We've got this picture in Genesis 20 and 20, 21 and 22 of this heavenly city that Joseph is longing for. It's this heavenly city in which there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is no more sorrow, there is no more crying, there is no more doubt. We've got this picture of a heavenly city with this river of life flowing through the middle of it and this tree that bears fruit every single month. We've got this picture of a city in which there's no need for a temple or even a sun because the glory of God dwells in the midst of that city and gives light to the entire city. This is the picture that we get. And I wonder, do you ever think about this? Do we ever think about eternity? Honestly, do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about eternity? I think what we've done in the church today is we've made it so much about the right now that we've forgotten about the not yet. And I think it's, there's a, a, a reaction that's happened per, probably the 60s and 70s and 80s, the uh, evangelistic movement that was all about just getting people into heaven and didn't really care about the person and uh, people were really abused and forsaken in the process of just trying to get people into heaven. And now people are saying, no, 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 it's not just all about heaven. It's about right now. The kingdom of heaven is now, uh, which is great. And it's true. And I love that. And I love that piece. It's really fueled a missions movement that has cared about justice and cared about people and cared about oppression. And I love that. 
Our ministry is built on that. But I think what we've done is we've gotten so focused on the right now that we've forgotten that there is a kingdom yet to come. That there's coming a real day when Jesus is really going to split the sky. That right now there's really a man on a throne in heaven and his, ma- his name is Jesus. There's a real man that really lives. He really exists. And he's sitting on the throne of heaven right now. And he's getting ready at any moment to split the sky. And when he does, he's going to be coming riding on a cloud, commanding the armies of heaven. He's going to slay the kings of the earth. And then he's going to restore this earth to what it was meant to be. Guys, this is actually going to happen. Like, this is really going to happen. And, and, and it's going to happen soon. How do I know it's going to happen soon? Because Jesus said so, Right? Three times in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus himself says, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. What does soon there mean? I think in the original Greek, uh, it means soon. I I think that's what that actually means. What's soon? Is it in our lifetime? I don't know. Is it another thousand years? I don't know. But here's what I know for certain is that it's closer than it was yesterday. That today, I'm one day closer than I was yesterday to standing face to face with the risen Christ. I wonder, do you ever think about this? Joseph thought about it. I don't mean speculate about it. That's, that's often all I hear. When's the last time you've even heard a sermon about this? Well, we, we actually are blessed to have had a sermon four or five weeks ago with Brandon talking about the return of Jesus and the coming judgment that's going to happen. That was awesome. If you guys remember, that was, like, that was like, man, refreshing to my soul to hear about that. But how much do we actually think about this and, and talk about it? Joseph certainly thought about it. I mean, if, if the writer of Hebrews is, is, is accurate, he didn't just think about it. He longed for it. He longed for it. He didn't just speculate, well, is, it, is this a literal thousand years or just a figure of thousand years? Uh, is, that, is it a real hell or just a figure of hell? No, he, he longed for the return of Jesus. He longed for it. He longed for it. And when you open your Bibles and you open the New Testament, you'll find that the New Testament writers, they longed for this. There's times where Paul seems to be consumed with the return of Jesus. I mean, read the book of Thessalonians to this church that's enduring great difficulty and persecution. And this is Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonian church is hold on because Jesus is coming back. Don't give up. Guys, don't give up because Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be very soon. Paul writes to the Roman church and he says, uh, these trials that you're facing, they're not worth comparing to the, the, uh, the, the revelation and the grace that will be given to you when Jesus returns. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says these temporary afflictions that we're facing, they're actually good for you. Why? Because they're preparing for you the weight of eternal glory. Paul says don't escape those He's not saying, no, pray that God would save you from these trials. He's saying, no, stay faithful in these trials because they're good for you. Because they're preparing you for eternity. 
Peter. Peter actually writes to us in 1 Peter. He says, let your hope rest fully in the coming of Jesus. And I'll often ask people, okay, Ryan, that's great. What does this have to do with my life right now? What, what, what does this have to do with how I live today? Now, let me say that, that, that comment often only comes from people living very comfortable lives. Uh, because I've been, I live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion. And uh, I've been around the world and been to some of the poorest areas. I mean, like, you hear about the places that people live on $2 a day. I've been to those places. At our mission school, uh, we take students to those places. Um, you talk about the return of Jesus in those, those places, and they're like, when is that coming? When, I want that. I want that day. I'll actually hear, when I um, talk about the return of Jesus, I actually hear this from some people, a, a sense of disappointment. Of like, man, that's great, but I hope not yet, because I just, man, I got, I got this brand new car. Man, I just got this new boat, and I want, I want to go water skiing this afternoon. I don't want to, there's a sense of disappointment when Jesus comes because he's going to come and ruin all of our fun because we have it so good in this life as if this life is the best it gets. We actually have books about your best life now as if we can have our best life. I heard a man say, uh, if your best life is now, you're going to be really sad in eternity. What, how does this impact our lives to long for eternity. Well, I would submit to you that a longing for eternity allows you to be fully present today. I actually do. I think that longing for eternity allows you to be fully present today. I'll hear nonsense like, well, you can't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Joseph longed for eternity it would be hard to argue that he was of no earthly good. Paul longed for eternity. It would be hard to argue that he was of no earthly good. See, when we long for eternity, when we long for this return of Jesus, here's what it allows us to do. That when you're in times of success and blessing, it allows you to take your hands off. We don't try to grab hold of all of this stuff. When your life is all about right now, then it's all about how do I get the better and the best and the biggest right now. And then when you get something new and you get success, you're just, you're just waiting for the next success and you're striving at the next thing and you're trying to grab this. But when you realize that there's coming a day when I'm not going to be able to take any of this with me, that all of this, the best that any of this is, is simply a shadow of what's to come. The greatest joys that I will ever experience in my life are but a shadow of what's to come. A shadow. I was, uh, I was on this bike ride yesterday. I love biking. I just love cycling. And I was on this incredible bike ride. I was just thinking about this yesterday. I'm on this bike ride and just it's like this elation in my life. And um, I have this moment, this thought of like, this is only a shadow of what it's going to be like. The, great, the greatest joy that I have with my kids is but a shadow of what it's going to be like in eternity. This allows me to take my hands off stuff and actually be present in the moment. Because when you're always looking for the next thing, you're never actually satisfied right now. 
When you understand that this is all but a shadow, you can be fully satisfied right now because you recognize there's something greater to come. Here's the other thing that it does for me is that in times of difficulty, it doesn't force me to try to escape those difficulties. When I take Paul's words seriously, that these temporary afflictions are preparing for me the weight of eternal glory, then I can be fully present in this pain and suffering. That I don't feel like I have to escape pain and suffering. Again, I want to be sensitive to this because I'm not, this is not a suck it up message. This is not a suck it up because Jesus, don't, you shouldn't feel pain. No, this does not actually alleviate the pain. It allows you to be fully present in the pain. Because you can recognize that in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of this difficulty and uncertainty, I know that this is all temporary. And I know that there's a purpose in it right now. That if, I tr- if all I try to do is escape this pain, I might be escaping God's purposes in my life right now. And so I can be fully present in that pain. Because I know that it's all going to be temporary. Here's what else this does in my life. Is a longing for eternity. It actually fuels a passion and a zeal for evangelism. It fuels a passion for evangelism. Why? Again, this, how does this impact my daily life? Because I've, I've got a zeal for evangelism in my life. What do I mean by evangelism? I'm not talking about lifestyle evangelism here. I'm not talking about, well, if I just live like Jesus, then my neighbors are going to get to know Jesus. No, I'm talking about actually telling people about Jesus. I mean like opening my mouth and telling people about Jesus. Why? Well, Scripture says that faith comes through hearing. And hearing comes through preaching. Right? My neighbors aren't going to know Jesus just because they see how I treat my kids. They actually need to hear about Jesus for them to have the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus. Why is that important? Because every single person that you will interact today is going to live for eternity. Every single person that you interact with today is going to live for eternity. Each one of you in this room will live for eternity. And and, and while I appreciate what's happened in the missions movement, uh, recognizing the value of the person right now. We do, you know, we're involved in housing and education and fine, we're involved in all of the holistic ministry. We believe that God cares about the whole person. Uh, but here's the deal. If my neighbors don't know Jesus, the amount of pain that they're going to endure for eternity uh, or the amount of pain that they're suffering right now here on earth is nothing compared to the amount of pain they're going to suffer for eternity if they don't know Jesus. And, and, and the amount of relief I can offer them if we get them a house or a job uh, or get their kids back from CPS, uh, the amount of relief that that is offered is nothing compared to the joys that they're going to know for eternity if they know Jesus. When's the last time you've told somebody about Jesus? Don't buy into this lifestyle evangelism. Now we have to live like Jesus, okay? That's an important piece of it. But what I'm saying is it's not enough for your neighbors to just see you loving your kids. You've got neighbors that are watching you right now that need to hear about Jesus. Oh, but Ryan, this is offensive. No, it's not all that offensive. You're just scared. That's really all it boils down to. 
People are not nearly as offended by the message of Jesus as you think they are. I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a guy that used to come around our coffee shop. We got this coffee shop ministry. His name is Michael. And uh, Michael has come around for months, and uh, we're committed to relationship, so we're not Bible thumpers, you know? Um, we just look for open doors. I don't ever force that door. I just ask the Holy Spirit to open that door, and when that door opens, I walk through it. Um, always looking for that door to kind of walk through it, but we don't push that door, you know? And so uh, we were building a relationship with this guy, Michael, for months, and uh, Mike, Michael's coming around, and very nice man, a cordial, elderly gentleman, and uh, one day I was talking to him, talking to him for hours, a couple hours, two, three hours. And this guy's well-versed in scripture, knows a lot about Jesus. But I noticed this thing. When people talk about Jesus, I'm always very, I always listen very carefully to what they're actually saying. And uh, he was talk- I noticed he was always talking about Jesus in the past tense, the Jesus that was. I thought this was very interesting. So I just asked him. I said, Michael, what do you actually believe about Jesus? Do you believe, and, and I explained this a little bit, but at the end of the conversation, I said, Michael, do you believe in the deity and the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, that he really came, died on a cross, rose again, and is coming back to judge? Do you believe that about Jesus? At the end of the day, he said, no, I don't. I believe that Jesus was a good man, but I don't believe that he was the son of God. So I looked at him and I said, Michael, you are a good man. He is, he's a very nice man. You are a good man. But if you die today in that belief, you will stand before the resurrected Christ and you will be judged to eternal hell. I know you're not allowed to say that to people. I know. I know that's offensive. Not allowed to say that to people. But that's what the Bible says. So I said it. A week later, I'm walking across the street from our coffee shop. Michael pulls up in his van, runs across the street, holds out his hand, and he says, Ryan, thank you. He says, Ryan, thank you. Nobody... He says, I've been around the church my whole life. This guy's probably 60 years old. I've been around the church my whole life. Nobody has been that clear with the gospel with me. He said, I don't know what I believe yet, but here's what I do know, is that what you said to me has been wrestling with me every minute of every day. I can't get it out of my mind. A couple months go by, and I see Michael, and we're just chatting. I'm not always, again, I'm not a Bible thumper. I'm just chatting with him, getting to know him. But one day, I go into the, the coffee shop or pavilion, and uh, Michael's in there, and he's kind of urgent. He's like, Ryan, Ryan, come down and sit, talk to me for a second. And uh, he said, man, I, every day since we've talked, I've been thinking about what you said. And here's what I've come to, come to understand. He said, this atheistic argument, it pulls strong at my mind. But here's what I've come to understand. I've come to understand that salvation comes only through faith, not through understanding. That I've got to have faith in this man, Jesus. And then he said this, and he said, and I see what you guys do here, and I know what you believe. He said, why why does he know? Because we've told him. Come in the pavilion, you're going to hear about Jesus. I know what you believe, and for me to deny Jesus means that I'm going to have to reject everything that you guys do in his name. And he said, I'm finding that harder and harder to do. The next day, a woman walks into the coffee shop, and um, a friend of ours was working, and this woman holds up a picture, says, do you know this man? And our friend says, yeah, of course, that's Michael. This woman says, uh, I'm Michael's wife. Michael died last night of a terminal disease that none of us knew he had. I don't know where Michael is today, but here's what I know, is he had the opportunity to believe. 
He had the opportunity to put his faith in Christ. He had the opportunity of the assurance of eternal salvation. Because guys, eternity is a big deal. Eternity is a big deal. Don't minimize eternity. Yes, it's the kingdom of God here, and I believe that. I believe God loves the whole person, and we work on that end. But eternity is a big deal. Joseph understood this. This is why he spoke about his bones going up, because he knew those bones were going to live again. I wonder, do we have that conviction in our lives? Does that overshadow anything in your life? All the joys and the successes in your life, are you able to let that go and say, this is, this is a shadow of what's to come? Any trials or tribulations, as great as those are right now. And I'm not going to say, well, it's nothing compared to what this person, no, it's not that. It's that there's some, it's all temporary. It's all temporary in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And there's another city that's going to be established. And in that city, there's going to be no more pain. And there's going to be no more sorrow. It's like uh, my wedding day. For weeks before my wedding day, we had a lot of work to do. I had to renovate the house, and there's a ton of work. There's a lot of sleepless nights, blood, sweat, tears. You know how that story goes leading up to the wedding day. But here's the deal. Is that I didn't, it didn't matter at that moment, Right? It didn't matter that I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. It didn't matter that I had a lot of work to do. It didn't matter that I had to put all this effort into it. Why? Because there was a wedding coming. Because there was a wedding coming. I was talking to my daughter about this the other day. We were talking about the return of Jesus. And I was just trying to teach her about who Jesus is. And uh, almost four years old. And uh, I said, where's Jesus? And she said, oh, in heaven. I said, you know know what, Lilia? Do you know that Jesus is going to come back? She's like, Really? I was like, yeah, he's going to come back. And do you know what it's going to be like when he comes back? She's like, what? It's going to be a huge celebration. She's like, really? Like a big party? I said, yeah, it's going to be the biggest party you've ever had. And she said, is there going to be cupcakes? (laughs) Yes, mountains of cupcakes if you want. I don't know. She gets it, kind of gets it. Maybe she doesn't get it at all. Maybe she just loves cupcakes. I don't know. I wonder, do we live with that eager expectation of Jesus' return so that we can be fully present right now? Not grumbling in our difficulties or boasting in our successes, but looking forward to the heavenly city that is about to come. I want to, uh, we hadn't planned on doing that this, this, this morning, but um, Greg just had the sense that this is what God's doing this morning, and so we're We're just going to offer it again this morning. uh, That maybe there's some of you here that when you, you're terrified to think about eternity because you don't know what that's going to be like for you. You're not sure what eternity is going to be. And I want to just say you can have that assurance this morning. This morning. You can walk from this room if you don't have that certainty this morning. If you don't have that certainty in your life, absolute certainty that your bones will live again and that they will rise in the heavenly city. If you don't live with that absolute certainty, you can have that absolute certainty this morning. It's a free gift. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong or how good you have been. The invitation is open to anybody that would receive it. 
And it's not the invitation of Crossroads Bible Church. It's the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the invitation to come home. To come home into this heavenly dwelling. To receive the forgiveness and to live with absolute certainty. That if you don't live with that absolute certainty this morning, I want to just plead with you. Don't leave here unless you have that absolute certainty that when you stand face to face with Jesus, that you're going to be welcomed with open arms and it's going to say, welcome home, my son or my daughter. If that's you this morning, we want to just make an unashamed call to to come and receive that invitation, to receive that certainty of salvation. When I actually invite you to, to come up to the front while Greg is leading us in song and uh, receive that invitation. There's no shame. Uh, there's no guilt. There's no embarrassment. You'll have a family that celebrates with you. I'll be up here. I want to invite, if any of the elders or leaders, or I don't know if you're just a prayer warrior and you want to pray with somebody, I invite you to come up. And uh, we're just going to let the Holy Spirit, if that's you this morning, that you need that certainty of your salvation. Maybe your whole life, You've been going through, you've been doing all the right things. And yet, there's this question in your heart. I just don't know. I don't know. You can walk away with that absolute certainty. And we want to offer that this morning. And so I'll be up here and there'll be some others up here that would love to pray with you. So that you can receive that free gift that Jesus has to offer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation. That because of what you did on a cross, taking on the full weight of the wrath of God so that I could be free, taking on becoming my sin so that I could bear your righteousness, so that I can now live, even in the midst of daily falterings and failures, I can live with absolute certainty of my salvation. I pray, God, that... I just pray, God, that... uh, by your Holy Spirit, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have that certainty, if there's anybody in this room that has a fear of eternity, that you would move on their hearts, that they would hear your voice saying, come home, come home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.